May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. The feeding of the multitudes. It's one of the few stories that's incorporated by all four of the gospel writers. There are some differences in the way that each tells the story. And as Helen pointed out last week in her sermon, Mark actually includes two feeding stories, one set in a Jewish context and one in Gentile territory. As is the case with John tonight, Matthew and Mark follow the feeding of the 5,000 with the account of Jesus coming across the stormy seas to his frightened disciples. And though tonight I'm going to focus more on the feeding story, taken together, the two stories speak to the overarching gospel question, who is this Jesus? At this point, as the story opens, the disciples are not entirely clear as to who he is, who they've been following. And certainly the crowds who follow him are mostly drawn in by what John calls the signs that Jesus was doing for the sick. People are deeply impressed by wondrous things. And so they were drawn to that and the potential of maybe healing for them. When that crowd realizes that in being fed together from so little a beginning, just a few loaves and two fish, they've actually experienced yet another one of these signs pointing to who he is, they begin to say, and this is directly from John, this is indeed the prophet who's co- who is to come into the world. And caught up in the thrill of the wondrous sign, their enthusiasm is such that Jesus feels he really needs to kind of keep moving, to get out of there. As John puts it, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That crowd had seen a sign of something that spoke to them of power. And so they're inclined to want to put him up on their symbol of power, which is a royal pedestal or a throne. Jesus, on the other hand, is the one who has come to them precisely as one of them. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or as Eugene Peterson puts it in his translation, the message, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And so his withdrawing from them at that point really stands as his refusal to buy into that model of what power looks like. His wondrous signs are meant to point to a whole other way of understanding how the world might work in the economy of God. Well, that image of bread offered in a wilderness points back to an earlier story, an ancient story from the tradition of the freed Hebrew slaves being fed in the desert. The slaves, remember, whose lives have been lived under the rule of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's kind of kingship, Pharaoh's kind of power. And once liberated after that initial burst of enthusiasm, we're free! Unsettling doubts begin to set in for those Hebrews. Why, Moses, have you led us from Egypt simply out into a desert where we're going to die? At least in slavery we had food. Here we have nothing. In answer 
to the people's fears and complaints, writes Walter Brueggemann, something extraordinary happens. God's love comes trickling down in the form of bread. They say, manhu, Hebrew for what is it? And the word manna is born. They'd never before received bread as a free gift that they couldn't control, predict, plan for, or own. The meaning of this strange narrative is that the gifts of life are indeed given by a generous God. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. It's an embarrassment. It's irrational. But God's abundance transcends the market economy. That's all from Brueggemann. God's abundance transcends Pharaoh's seven-day-a-week market economy, in which, in return for a bit of food, slaves are worked to death. Manna, what is it, is the bread of life in an unforgiving desert, and there's enough there for everyone. And yet, as Brueggemann then notes, because Israel had learned to believe in scarcity in Egypt— People started to hoard the bread. And when they tried to bank it, to invest it, it turned sour and rotted because you cannot store up God's generosity. What you need to do is simply to trust it. Trust is not always easy, particularly when you're out in the wilderness, in the desert, like the slaves, the freed Hebrew slaves, or out in a wilderness place with your teacher and 5,000 hungry audience members. And so in this gospel we heard Philip sounding as if he's pretty much at home with Pharaoh's version of reality, Pharaoh's kind of economy. When Jesus asks Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Philip's answer is blunt. Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. It's to the point, and ever so reasonable, who could possibly afford to feed this crowd? I might have given the same answer myself. Had I been there and Jesus asked me, I suspect many of us would have. Now what follows next is unique to John's telling of this story. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, came to him and said, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, I love that John has given us that little piece of information. I love it for a couple of reasons. First off, it means that this child, this little boy is to be pictured as being close enough to Jesus and to the Twelve that he was aware that they had this concern about food for the crowd. He's not way at the back. He's not lost in the crowd. He's not been pushed off to the kids' program in the basement. He's right there, up front, with them. And I love that his response is to offer what he has, a couple of fish, and five little loaves made from barley flour. It's his bag lunch. Here, mister, I'll share my sandwich, my apple, my fruit roll-up. And I like that Andrew is at least prepared to take the boy's offer forward to Jesus, even if he can't resist adding a little editorial comment. 
What is this for so many people? Here's the lunch. What is this for so many of us? What is it? Manhu, manna. It's enough and more besides. Everyone is filled and still 12 baskets are left. More, in fact, than what they began with. What is it for so many? Enough. Who is this Jesus, the story asks, and right away answers that he is the one who takes the gift of a child and feeds a crowd. He's the one whose presence allows a crowd of people to sit down together and to share a meal. No small thing in its own right, for it wouldn't have been easy for Torah-abiding Jews to eat food they weren't sure was kosher, in the company of strangers they didn't know were clean or unclean. He's the one who pushes aside Pharaoh's way of understanding scarcity and Philip's very practical way of understanding the logistics of feeding a crowd and demonstrates the truth of abundance when seen from God's side of things. Jesus is the one who demonstrates the truth of abundance when seen from God's side. When you think about it, along with Jesus, the one character in the story able to see things from God's side is the little boy and his bag lunch. And I hope that as he grew up, he never lost that capacity, though I suspect he did. It doesn't come naturally to most of us to see things in that kind of a way, or at least not once we've left that place of childhood and learned to think like Philip. Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of us to have even a little. Send them away. What do you expect me to do about it? I can't change anything. Not in my backyard. All the ways that we fail or, or resist the possible by being so practical, so prudent, so pharaoh-like in our understanding. Yet by including this detail about the boy's lunch, John is reminding us that so often the work of God begins with the gifts that we offer however insignificant they might seem. What we do, what we bring, however small, however insecure we feel about it, is taken seriously in God's strange version of things. We just need to learn to trust that. What is in your lunch bag? Whatever it is, however small, however fearful you are about it, however insecure you feel, what you're carrying in that symbolic lunch bag may be the very thing the reign of God is calling on right now. Amen.